When I was in sixth grade, I, was, uh, I had to transfer to a new school about two hours from where I grew up, and I was introduced to my all-time least favorite subject in the history of the universe, math. And I was a new student, wasn't super smart, especially compared to those smart kids I was in class with, and we were learning all kinds of equations and formulas that my little sixth grade mind could not barely comprehend. Uh, my teacher gave me some homework as well as the rest of the class, and uh, we eagerly left the class, and we went home, and that evening, I sat at the kitchen table, and I was just as studious as can be, and I was doing all the questions, the whole page from top to bottom, every question, I was just so uh, steadfast to answer them, and it took me probably 10 times longer than the average person to answer about 10 questions. And I was getting through there, and I finally got to the bottom, finished the last equation, felt just great that I was finished with the worst subject ever for the day. I uh, put my name at the top of, of, of the paper, put the date on there, filed that bad boy away in my backpack, and uh, went to bed. The next day, I went to school, I went into my math class, and I, with great joy, handed the teacher my homework. Uh, the next day, I'm back in class, and she's then passing out the graded homework for the, the previous day's assignment, and she walks up to me, and I'm just like, I can't wait to see what I made, and she hands me my paper, and I look at the top corner, and it had the big numbers, five zero. I made a 50 on my math paper. And I was so distraught because of all the time I put into it, all the hard work, and I thought I knew the content. I thought I understood what, was, what I was asked to do, and I realized that I only got half of the questions right, or so I thought, uh, until I looked at the paper, turned it over, and realized I didn't do any of the work on the back. Yeah. See, my problem was I only did half of the work. And isn't that always a problem in math class when you only do half the work? You know, the problem is, is so many times, even in our Christian life, it's so important to understand the whole assignment, right? The whole assignment. My issue and my wrong and my failure was that I understood half of my job. And in the Christian life, especially when you go to a church like Compass Bible Church, half the job is super obvious, isn't it? You come in here, uh, you hear the pastor talk about the Great Commission, right? We're out here, we want to reach people for Jesus. We were out here to make disciples of all the nations. And you get out there and you do all the work uh, that you're asked to do, and you come back in and you say, I feel like I'm missing something. And you would be right. As a matter of fact, biblically speaking, if all you did is spent time uh, taking that and making disciples, and, and I'm not saying the implication, I'm not trying to tell you the implication of it isn't to also do this other half, but I'm saying if all that you want to do is say, my only job is to take a non-Christian and to make them a Christian and then make them become a mature Christian. Like if that's all that you think your job is as a Christian, you got half the job and you're doing half of it right. But the problem is, is... At the end of this thing, you're going to look at the top of your paper and say, man, I really missed out on the other half. And what is the other half? What is the other half of, of what it means to be a Christian? Well, if the first half is what we call the Great Commission, the other half that Jesus articulated is what we call the Great Commandment. Right? That we have a job to go make disciples, and we better do it with all of our hearts, all of our strength, all of our minds. We're going to do those things, but there's something else that we do with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength, and it is to love God and love others. And we're going to find that this morning as you open up your Bibles to Colossians 4. And if you have your computer, open that up, Colossians 4, 10 through 11, or whatever you are following along with this morning. You see, my failure was that I didn't see the whole assignment. And what I want to make sure that this morning, as, as believers, as we sit in here, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, what I want you to understand is as Christians, anyone who's a Christian, we have, uh, we have two assignments that's one, right? We have two assignments that's one. We're going to make disciples, and we also need to be the kind of people that take great care of the brothers and sisters in Christ. So we take great care of one another uh, who call Compass home, right? You see, because fulfilling the Great Commission... While failing the great commandment means you've missed half of the assignment that God has given us as Christians. And this morning I want us to learn through Paul's letter to the Colossians how Paul and his companions successfully fulfilled both the great commission 
and the great commandment. And in the context, what I want you to look at here when it comes to the great commandment, if you're open to Colossians 4, I want you to look at the end of verse 11, and I want you to see exactly, before we jump into the rest of the text, what it means, uh, what Paul is talking about that leads us to this understanding that we need to do the great commandment well. The end of verse 11, it says, Among my fellow workers, uh, Aristarchus and Mark and, and Justice, right? these are my fellow workers for the kingdom, and they have been a great comfort to me. Right? If you write or take notes, which I hope you do, I want you to underline the word comfort. Why do I want you to underline the word comfort? It's the theme of these two verses. It's the most important part of why Paul even addresses these three people in these two verses. Right? So many times when we read through letters like this and we get to the end, uh, if you're not careful, you're going to speed past them, not realizing that God had breathed out these words through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and the prophets, and they're here for a reason. Okay? Because if you're not careful, you're going to read past all this stuff just because they look like names. Right? So-and-so says, hey, my cousin says, hey, my brother says, hey, and, and bye. Right? I mean, that's how often we read the endings to a lot of the letters in the Bible. But you have to understand, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Did you hear that? All Scripture, every part of it. And what that means is Colossians 4, 10, and 11, when it's just some names, is profitable to teach you, to train you, to correct you, to lead us in holiness, to prepare us and equip us for the work that God has prepared for us to do. And that's the reason why I say, hey, look at verse 11. It has something to say. God has something to tell us from Colossians 4, 10 and 11. And I'm telling you, the theme here from Scripture is that Paul talks about these three men because they did something really important that every Christian should do. And that is they were a comfort to me. See, I want you to look at these three. We'll look at in depth, at least in how and why Paul thought that these guys were comforts to them. Why did Paul use these guys? Well, let me give you, I have some maps up here. We don't usually do maps, but I figured today would be a good exception. All right, I don't want you to look at this map. Uh, the first person that we are introduced to is a man by the name of Aristarchus. Aristarchus uh, is, is a seemingly small figure in Scripture, but there's something very interesting if you understand the historical narrative of the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. Is how many of you, raise your hand if you've never heard of Aristarchus ever? Be honest, that's great. Most of it, right? We know, a lot of people don't know who Aristarchus is. But do you know who knew Aristarchus really, really well? Paul. As a matter of fact, if you look and understand the narrative in the book of Acts, Aristarchus is with Paul through half of the letter. As a matter of fact, over half of the letter. And I want to show you exactly where that happens. What you see up here is Paul's second missionary journey. So he already went on one, and it was just kind of uh, what you would say over here in the green area, up into Cilicia, and, and that kind of area there. Uh, that was the first missionary journey. You don't need to know, see a map for that part. Uh, but this is the second one. And the second one took a much broader path. I mean, at this point, we see him going to Galatia and Asia and Macedonia and Achaia. He, I mean, he's going a long way. And I'm not saying he wasn't on a 737. Okay? This guy was on some, some crotchety little things, like on his feet, on some donkeys, on some sailboats that aren't anything close to the sailboats that we use today. Okay? And this is what Paul had done. When he went to, if you'll look at that black circle I have up there, he was in Macedonia in a town called Thessalonica. And when he was in Thessalonica, he met the man who we know as Aristarchus. And Paul was preaching the gospel, and he was planting churches, and he was introduced to Aristarchus. He preached the gospel to him, and Aristarchus turned from his sins and trusted in Christ. You see, it's already a compelling story, and you didn't even know anything about the guy. But here's something really, really, really cool about Aristarchus. When we talk about the comfort of brothers and sisters in Christ, the necessity for you and for me to take serious the great commandment, and that is that we are loving one another, we're a comfort and a help to one another, how pivotal that is. I want to show you why this map is so significant. From the moment of this red circle, sorry, black circle, red map, black circle, from that moment until Paul, the end of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, which is a lot of years, 
From that moment until Rome, Aristarchus was with Paul. Every step of the way. And I want to show you. All the way from Macedonia to Achaia, all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, all the way back to Jerusalem and up to Antioch. And guess what? I'll show you the third missionary journey. Throughout the whole third missionary journey, guess who was with Paul and the disciples? Aristarchus. His presence was so pivotal and important in the expansion of the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world and even into Europe uh, that it's so important that when we look at God's word, we understand that the people that God puts in Scripture matter, and they are of utmost importance to us to understand. You see here in the third missionary journey, you see them starting up there again in Antioch. They go all the way kind of around where they were in the second missionary journey, and they go plant churches. And through that whole place, Aristarchus was there. There's a couple of places of interest that you should know. Uh, according, when you, when you look at Scripture, according to Acts 19, uh, Aristarchus was in a little bit of a, 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 a scruffle. In Acts 19, in Ephesus, when they were planting a church and they were preaching the gospel, something really crazy happened. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. There were some pagans there, some people who didn't love the Lord, people who worshipped idols, and they made money through building things to sell that were idols. And as they were preaching the gospel, uh, these idol sellers, if you will, uh, recognized, uh-oh, if these people follow Jesus, we're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose our money. Because if they follow Jesus, they're not following Artemis, who we make little action figures in the store down the street when people come visit us. All right, I won't have my, my job anymore. And, and what happened, they created such a riot in Ephesus that Aristarchus and a couple of others, the mob drugged them through the town, all for the sake of the gospel. Right? And you're like, how do you not know this guy? I mean, this guy was an absolute stud, right? And, and here's what happens. At the end of his third missionary journey, Paul is arrested. He's arrested in Jerusalem, and he's being persecuted, uh, and he's being held in prison. And because they wouldn't listen to him, Paul did something. He appealed to Rome because he was a Roman citizen. He had the ability to appeal to the emperor. And so what you see in the next map is Paul's journey from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Do you know who was with him this whole time? Two people. That's good. All right, we're paying attention. I like it. All right, I like it. Aristarchus. Aristarchus was with them his whole time. And some interesting things were going on when Paul was with Aristarchus, even to prison. Even as he was on his way to prison to go appeal into Rome, and Paul was held in Rome in prison for two years, uh, while they were going through the Mediterranean Sea, a big storm hit, and their ship crashed ashore uh, there on the little island of Malta, there in the middle of the sea. You know who was swimming with Paul? Aristarchus. That's exactly right. The point I'm making here is there's a reason Paul puts this guy in the list. There's a reason why Paul says, here's Aristarchus. And when Paul says Aristarchus, there's a picture in his mind. There's ideas in his mind, and there's a definition of who is Aristarchus to him that makes him so important to put into God's word. Because Aristarchus was important to Paul. Aristarchus meant something to Paul, and he knew that Aristarchus was the kind of guy that would stick with me through thick and thin. He was the kind of guy that I would want to be around because Aristarchus was always there no matter what because he knew how important his presence was in the life and the ministry of Paul. If you look there in verse 10 in Colossians 4, uh, it gives Aristarchus a title. Paul says, Aristarchus is my fellow prisoner. There's something interesting, right? This whole time, you heard me say that Paul got arrested, didn't you? Did you hear me ever say that Aristarchus was arrested? Most scholars suggest, and that's what I would also assert, is that Aristarchus was a prisoner of volition. That is, Paul was arrested, Aristarchus wasn't. But Aristarchus was committed to the mission of making disciples to the Gentiles, and Paul was the progenitor of the mission to the Gentiles. It was Paul's responsibility to take the mission to the Gentiles. And Aristarchus says, I'm with Paul. Right? If he's in prison, I'm in prison. Right? If he's shipwrecked, I'm shipwrecked. Right? If he's getting drugged around Ephesus because of the mob, I'm getting drugged around in Ephesus because of the mob. And, and what I want you to understand this morning, right? remember, because I told you in verse 11 that Paul says, these men were a comfort to me. And that is the goal, right? That in our Christian lives, that through the great commandment, that is that we're loving one another, that we're caring about one another, that we're comforting one another, that we got to understand, how do I do that? How do I comfort one another? Well, the first point you can take from 
Aristarchus is this, point number one on your outline, if you're taking notes, I wish you would take some notes, I think it would be helpful. Point number one is you need to engage in the ministry of presence. Engage in the ministry of presence. What does that mean? Be around people. Be around Christians. Right? Take time to invest in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, that's, that's the goal here, and that's what I want you to see through the maps. I want you to see those maps took place over years. Right? It wasn't, hey, you know, I became a part of you know, Compass you know, four months ago, and you know, I don't have people who I'm attached to the hip, but I don't have people who would take a bullet for me or who would shipwreck in Malta with me or get drugged through downtown New Braunfels with me. But, but you could, and you probably will, if you would engage in the ministry of presence, that you would take time to invest in the people who call Compass home, and they would invest in you. Isn't that some of our biggest problems in our lives? Like, we're, we're so isolated, we're so alienated, uh, we have this desire from far off to want this community, and to want people who love me and care about me, uh, but yet you're not investing and in, in taking the time to be connected with the kinds of people that you desire to live life with. I mean, the very people that you wish that you were in community with are the same people that you're not investing in community with. And I love Aristarchus because when Aristarchus was saved, he's like, that guy, I'm going with that guy. Right? How great would it be if as we see Christians who are following hard after God, we say, I'm going with them. I'm living life with those people because those people got something right and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and their lives look like it. And that's what we see here. I want to take you to a passage. Flip to 2 Corinthians 7. Quickly, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to show you, through a couple of verses, how important the ministry of presence is, not only in our interpersonal relationships, not only anthropologically speaking, from human to human. I want to show you, in God's Word, how important it is, the ministry of presence, that is, how important it is to God. And first, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 6 to show you how God expects us to engage in this ministry, the service of being present with people. There in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 and 6, Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, y'all saw Macedonia up on the map earlier, didn't you? They were in Macedonia and they were going there. And here's how he was feeling. Paul was feeling pretty cruddy. He was not doing great. He says, Our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, and there was fighting without, and there was fear within. How many people feel that way? There's conflict outside of your life. There's fear in your heart. Anybody ever feel that way? Yeah, that right? We, we often feel that way. To be a Christian, it doesn't take uh, this idea that you won't have uh, conflict in your life, and there won't be fear in your, in your heart. You're going to have these, and God has a solution to them. Can I show you the solution to this idea that there is conflict outside and there is fear within? Verse 6 says, but God who comforts the downcast. Isn't that great? Already, I mean, that's not the whole story, but you understand it is God who comforts the downcast. Very important for you to understand. And, and a lot of us do. This is where we would, the Bible puts a, a comma here. We usually put a period. God comforts the downcast. Isn't that, I mean, that's how we always expect God to show up. I don't care, God, I'm going to go get in my closet. I'm going to go in the corner. I'm going to sit there until you show up and give me this supernatural comfort. Right? Does that happen? Of course it happens, right? Is that always God's number one means to give comfort to his people? Well, why don't we see what the Bible has to say? What does it say right there? But God who comforts the downcast, his, God, his comfort, he will comfort. His, his Holy Spirit is known as the comforter, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Did you see that? I don't want you to miss what, what was just said here, what God's word just expelled to you here. God who comforts the downcast, because that's what God is. He's a comforter. He wants to comfort us. He did it by the way of a person. He gave comfort to Paul and the disciples by the coming of Titus. Right? If anything, this morning, at least grasp onto that and recognize that you have a part to play in the kingdom of God. You have a part to play in the ministry of presence. It is God doing the comforting because you have no capacity to comfort outside of God empowering you to comfort. That is a very true statement. But God uses means to accomplish his goal and his means in comforting in so many scenarios is people, is the coming of Titus. I want you to, I want you to see that because it, I want you to understand it's your job to engage in the ministry of presence. 
Right? It's not just the, the, the special ones in the church who somehow you've lifted up on a pedestal that they don't belong. It's not the pastor's uh, only, he's not the only one who's responsible to engaging in the ministry of presence. It's all of us who are responsible to engage with one another in this ministry of being present and comforting one another. Another scripture you can jot down, I don't want you to flip to it, but jot down John 14, 15 through 17. John 14, 15 through 17. This is Jesus speaking, and this is what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. There's a great description of the Holy Spirit, and that's what he's talking about. I'm going to give you the helper. Uh, The helper is often uh, reserved to the Holy Spirit. There's other places in Scripture, a lot of times in Scripture, uh, the helper is also uh, describes the wife in, in a marital relationship. But in this context, and so often in Scripture, even God himself in, in Genesis is called the helper. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to ask the Father, and I'm going to give you another helper to be with you forever. That word helper and that word comfort are from the same Greek family. Right? Those words are complementary. They, they, are, they were related to one another. So in the same way that God says, I'm going to give you a helper, right? And he's going to help you, and that Holy Spirit is going to guide you and lead you and comfort you. It's from the same family of words that Paul uses when he says, you know, these men that I'm talking about, these three men, they have been a comfort to me. Can I help you a little bit? Some people translate that word comfort that we see here in Colossians 4 as help. So in, in a similar way that God gives us his spirit to help us and comfort us is in a similar way how God calls us as brothers and sisters in Christ to be of comfort and help to one another. This, I, hope that puts a, I hope a light bulb goes off in your mind for a minute to say, that's why I haven't felt so comforted since I've been a Christian. That's why sometimes I just don't, I don't feel like I've, I've had that comfort or I've had that help because I'm not being a comfort and I'm not being a help. Like, I'm not even applying half of the assignment. I get the first half, I get the spirit, I get the help, I get the comfort, but I forgot the other half of the assignment, or maybe I didn't understand the the assignment, and I'm not doing the comforting and the helping that I'm also assigned to do as a Christian. And this is what he says, continuing in verse 16. I'm going to give you another helper, and he's going to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. Verse 17, very important. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Again, this is important as Christians to understand that the world cannot receive the helper that is the spirit. It's reserved for a group of people. Now, that's not a popular statement, right? That that God's help, his helper, his very presence is reserved for a specific group of people, and that is his church. That is the people who have turned from their sins and who have trusted in him, that is the group who has the Spirit of God, who has the, the helper. And, and the, here's what Jesus, his very words say, the world can't receive him. It doesn't see him, and it doesn't know him. Did you all hear that? The world cannot see him, and it does not know him. What are the implications of that? Really easy implication. The importance of you and I being of help and comfort to one another is of biblical importance because we're the only ones who can truly give each other the kind of helpful help and the kind of comfort that is necessary and beneficial for Christians because you can't find it outside of God's church. You can't find it anywhere. You can only find it in the midst of God's people because I see that the world can't receive him. It can't see him or it doesn't know him. And, but what does it say after that? But you know him. You have the comforter. You have the helper. You need to engage in the ministry of presence because you're the only ones who can do it. You're the only ones who can really give help that is helpful. You're the only ones who can give a comfort that comes from God himself. You're going you're to get a verse in your application questions uh, this week, and it's going to tell you the exact, that exact statement, that the God of comfort has comforted you, comma, so that you can comfort others in afflictions. Did you hear that? I didn't put it in here for a reason because I want you to study that this week in your application questions. God says, the God of comfort has comforted you, not period, comma, so that you can comfort others. Did you see that? You don't get comfort just for the sake of comfort. You've been comforted by God so that you can comfort other people. I mean, 
does this blow your mind a little bit here? I mean, this is good stuff. I mean, this is important for us to know. And it is the other half of the assignment. It is an extra credit at the end of it if you want to do it. It's, it's part of the assignment here. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, I'll tell you the big deal. Presence is such a big deal in the life of the Christian because God's plan from beginning to end was to be with his people. Always. It was always God's plan. It was never not God's plan to be present with his people. And if it was God's will and God's plan to be present with people, it's God's plan and it's God's will that his people are present with his people. Okay, can I show you? Genesis, Genesis uh, in, the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. Who was with Adam and Eve in the garden? Who was there? God. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. So from the very beginning, God's desire was to dwell with his people. Okay, man sinned, caused a separation between God, and God could no longer be around sin and unholiness. What did God do? God said, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to call out a people. I'm going to separate a people, a holy people, right, Israel. I'm going to set apart a holy people, and they're not sinless, so I can't be with them one-on-one like I was with Adam and Eve, but I'm going to, I want them to do something. I'm going to have them to build a temple. They're going to build a temple. They're going to consecrate it. They're going to do it to exactly the, to the specifications that I've called them to, and I will dwell in that temple so that I can be with my people. Did you see that? God said, I'm going to, I'm going to be with my people. I'm going to make sure that my grace and my mercy and my love and my presence is with my people. And then what happens? Then you get into the Gospels. And, and they said, there's going to become one, John the Baptist, there's going to become one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And, and they said, at his birth, his name will be Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. I mean, come on. I mean, this is the Bible we're talking about here. This was God's plan that he's going to be with us. That God's desires to be with us. And then I love it because here we are, right in this text. He says, I've got to go. Jesus said, I gotta go. And it's better that I leave because when I leave, I'm going to send you a helper. The helper, I'm gonna give you my spirit. I'm gonna give you the spirit of God to dwell in your life. And you know what he says right after that? Where I am going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That where I am, you're gonna be there too. Do you see that? God's like, I, I, my people, I'm gonna be with my people, my people are gonna be with me. And I love it because you get to Revelation, you get when God is with his people and the people are with God, God says, and this is it. I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. Do you see how God has been so zealous and so jealous for his presence among his people? And you think something so important to God should be so of little importance to us. What is ultimately important to God is that people could be holy and to be able to be in his presence should mean to you and I that to be in one another's presence is of utmost importance to God. And we got to make sure that we take serious the role, the assignment to engage in the ministry of presence with one another. To quote John F. Kennedy, I want you to do something in this sermon. Don't ask what others can do for you. Ask what you can do for others. And uh, he said country, but I changed it a little bit, okay? What I want you to do in this sermon, because what you're going to do in this sermon, if you're not careful, is you're going to say, yeah, those people should comfort me. Yeah, tell them, pastor, these people that don't give no comfort and help to nobody. These people, that, that my, my, my husband's going to learn today, all right? My kids, I can't wait for my kids to hear this. Some of you, you know, your spouse isn't here, your kids aren't even here, and you're saying, I can't wait to share the link with them after service. They're going to watch this, and they're going to love it. I'm telling you, apply it to your life. Don't, try, don't wait to apply it to someone else's life. Say, you're going to apply this in your life today. Today, it's time for you to apply God's word, not looking for someone else to apply the word. It's your job today to take this sermon and apply it to your life, not looking for others to make sure they do it first. I mean, this is time for you to engage in the ministry of presence. And I mean that because so many of us are, so, are often so prideful, uh, ignorant in, in the best term, right? We use the word ignorant, but ignorant just means you don't know, right? Some of us just don't know that the Bible is so explicit on this idea that we have to be last and we have to be the comforter and the help for other people. And Jesus goes as far to say in Mark 9.35, if anyone would be first, right? if you want to be on the front of the line, in, the, in God's economy, if you want to be in the front, we all want to be in the front, don't we? I, love it. I remember when I was in school, I always wanted to be the first in line, all the time, for lunch, 
right, for, for water, for recess. I mean, if you told me to form a line for no reason or whatever, I wanted to be first. We didn't have to go anywhere. I wanted to be first. Right? And God knew that. God knows that about people. We want to be first. And Jesus said, if you want to be first, you're going to be last. Right? If you want to be the first, you've got to be the servant of all. And what I'm saying is if you're one of those people in here today who always, I just need people to comfort me. I just need people to help me. I'm the one who needs it. You're putting yourself at the front of the line. And when you look straight and you look in front of you, who's there? Nobody. Right? And you get so just frustrated. There's no one here to help me. There's no one. That, where is everybody? And you look behind you and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm first. So I have to turn around and, and, and help the people behind me? Yes, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. That's exactly our role here. So that's what I'm saying. You need to apply this to your life because if you've always been the person on the front of the line like me, you've got to learn how to turn around or get to the back of the line because it's, you have to apply this to your life or you're going to sit the rest of your life in church and be like, no one ever helped me, no one ever comforted me. And people are behind you like, are you ever going to turn around and help? Are you ever going to be a comfort? And that is a true statement. You have to turn around, be help. Be comfort to those behind you. And in order to do that, you got to get out of first place because that's not your spot. Your spot is in the back so that you could be first at the exaltation of Christ. You can be vindicated for everything in your life at the exaltation of Christ. And it's all going to be worth it. And you're going to understand why all of it happened when Christ is raised up and lifted up and he's going to be ruling for eternity. Mm, this is good, right? Come on. All right. You know this to be true, though, and this is the hard part. This is where it gets, and that part was like, yeah, that's the Bible, preach it. This part, it's like, okay, this is where it starts getting hard. Because you know when you're around people long enough, conflict starts happening, doesn't it? You know, you know that this church is nine months old. How many of you had conflict with somebody in the church over the last nine months? Liars? <laughs> okay, okay. I, I, I am in enough counseling meetings to know that you guys are in conflict with people in our church, okay? Do your spouse go to church with you? You ain't been in conflict with your spouse in nine months? Mm, I know, I know. It's getting, I told you, I was going to get hotter in here. You thought it was hot. It's now getting hot, okay? All right. The point is, is you know when you're around people long enough, conflict happens. But there's still this responsibility that we have according to the Bible, right? The Bible says that I have to give comfort to brothers and sisters in Christ. I know that's biblical truth, right? We can all stand on that and say, that's the truth. It's just the truth. I got to do it, okay? But then there's things that happen, like conflict, grudges, right? This friction I have between other people. That's a truth. That's truth, right? That, that happens. Now I got to take, okay, the Bible says I have to be a comfort and a help, but this is the reality that I'm living in. They have to be able to reconcile somehow. And they do. You just have to look at the Bible. Why don't we look at the Bible? What does it say? I want you to look at verse 10. Actually, I want you to look at the second half of verse 10. We're introduced to this other guy that you know you may, not just, you may not know him, you know him better than you think you know him, right? And it says, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. So this is Mark, or also known in the New Testament as John Mark. He's also, uh, history, right, church history has accredited the gospel of Mark to be his account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel of Mark that you read was penned and written by John Mark. And you say, why does a guy have two names? Well, it's because he has a Jewish name and he has a Roman name, right? He has John as his Jewish name. Mark is his Roman, is his Greek name, okay? A lot of you, if you, went to, if you went to Mexico or you went to another country, you would have two names too, right? So that's why you, a lot of times in the, in, the, in the Bible, you see people with a couple of different names, okay? Because they're, they're in lots of different cultures, so they're called different names. Side note, back to the main point. When, when you read verse 10 and you don't understand the history of Paul and Mark, you're going to say, well, that's nice. I'm, I'm sure glad they're friends. Okay, Because you're going to see this. He's going to say, hey, Mark is coming, and if he comes to you, welcome him. You're like, sure, that's what Christians do. Until you understand the narrative of the New Testament and you understand just how much animosity was between Mark and Paul. As a matter of fact... Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary trip. So the first missionary trip, Paul, they're going and they're preaching the gospel. They're planting churches. They're leading people to Christ. The movement has begun. And in Acts 13, Mark decides not to go with Paul and Barnabas anymore. 
Mark says, I'm leaving. I'm going my way. I'm going back to where I want to go. You guys keep going. And Paul was not happy about it. We don't know why. I, I don't, I, we can speculate on why Mark left. He could have been, he could have, whatever you want to say, he could have been upset. He could have been angry. He could have disagreed with Paul. I mean, he could have been homesick for all I know. All I know is he left and Paul wasn't happy about it. Can I show you where Paul wasn't happy about it? Acts 15. You don't have to flip there. You can just listen. Acts 15, verses 36 through 40. This is after Mark left, and this is what it says. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, and you remember, Barnabas and, and Mark are cousins. Remember that. You always need to remember that. Family matters, even in the, in the context of Scripture. They're related. They're cousins. He says, let us return to visit the brothers in every place where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. That's Paul. Paul being a great pastor, right? He's like, all these churches that we planted, time to go back and see them. Time to see how they're doing. We need to go be a comfort and a help to them. So they're going to go, and they're going to go, and they're going to check on all the churches. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. So Paul's looking at, Paul's <laughs> looking at Barnabas, and he's saying, I know he's your cousin, but that's not enough for me. All right. I know he's your cousin. I don't want him to go. He left us. He deserted us. He had nothing to do with us, and I ain't having it. How do I know that happened? I'll read the rest of it. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took cousin Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Do you see this? I mean, even in Scripture, there's, there's this truth of saying, the truth of the matter is, I got to be helpful. I got to be a comfort to people. But then you have these real life things that happen in your life, and you're like, well, how can I be a comfort of help when there's grudges between us, when there's animosity between us, when there's conflict between us? Well, aren't you glad that we have the whole New Testament? Aren't you glad that we have the entire self revelation of God and not just part of it? Because if we had stopped in Acts, right, right there in Acts 15, you'd have been like, I guess it's okay for Christians to carry grudges. But God disclosed himself to us completely through his word, and we didn't stop at Acts 15. We have all the way into the book of Revelation, and we see that Paul thought it was very important not to live with grudges and animosity as a Christian. Because what you're going to see here is later in Paul's life and his letters, something changes about the way that he talks about Mark. I mean, you go from this where he's like, I don't even want to be near him. I don't want him to be anywhere close to us. But look what he says later. 2 Timothy 4.11, jot that down. Later in Paul's life, and perhaps shortly before his death, I mean, he was very old, old man Paul at this point. 2 Timothy 4.11, this is what he says. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Did you hear that? He said, I don't want you anywhere near me. And now he's about to die, and he's like, you know who I want here? You know who I want you to bring me right now? Bring me Mark. He's precious to me. He's useful to me. I, I want him here. Something drastic happened between Acts 15 and 2 Timothy 4.11 that is very important for every one of us to take note of as Christians, and that is the reality that they got past their grudges. They got past their grudges, and that's point number two on your outline. I want you to jot that down. Get past prior grudges. Because I love this here, because in one of Paul's times of greatest need, he's close to death, right? Don't you wish you had people comforting? Don't you hope you have people who are going to comfort you right when you're about to die? Anyone? Okay. Are you a bunch of cold-hearted people? You don't want anybody there? Okay. I do. All right. I want all of you there. The more of you, the better, right? The more people I can have around me, the better I'm going to feel all right, when I'm about to die and be with my Lord. Okay. But Paul knew something. I'm about to die. The person I want with me is Mark. I, when the time I need the greatest comfort in my life, I want Mark there with me. I want you to see that this isn't no, I mean, this isn't a, a situation where we're saying, well, I guess he needed him to do something for him. People always want me to do things, but they don't really want my presence. Paul was close to death, and he called Mark. And I'm saying that they understood that the need to get past grudges was of utmost importance for the advancement of the gospel. Getting past grudges was so important when it comes to the fellowship of believers. And we need to make sure that we get past our own prior grudges in our own lives. Grudges are like cane toads. Anybody know what a cane toad is? 
No, good. This is going to be great. Cane toads. All right? Cane toads are amphibians, and therefore they, they range anywhere from South, uh, South America all the way up to the Rio Grande Valley. So you go down to the ocean, you may see one of these bad boys you, from here to there. Okay? Cane toads, two things you need to know about them. Two very important things you need to know about cane toads. They are very poisonous and very invasive. As a matter of fact, uh, they're so poisonous that you can't even pick them up. If you get it in your eyes or your mouth, you can die. And they're so invasive, they're actually on uh, the top most invasive species on planet Earth. Okay? Two very important things to know about cane toads. Now, what you need to know about cane toads and grudges. Two things you need to know about cane toads and grudges. They're deadly when you hold on to them. And if you don't let go of them and you don't get rid of them, they're going to invade your whole world. Okay? It's important for you to know. Right? If you're not going to let go of grudges and you're not going to get rid of grudges, they're going to kill you. They're going to take up all of your emotion, all of your time, all of your energy, and it's going to get into the rest of your life. You have a grudge today, you're going to have a grudge tomorrow, right? You're thinking about your grudge tomorrow, you're going to be thinking about it next week. You don't get over your grudge next week, it's going to be there next month, and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. And you think that you're only good enough to only have one grudge? If you can't get over one grudge, how are you not going to get over three grudges? What happens when you have ten grudges? I'm saying they're invasive. It's not just a one-time thing. You're going to be dealing with things for the rest of your life. And Paul and Mark knew that, and they got past their grudges because they knew how important it was for the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how important it was for Christian believers to make sure that they were living above reproach and that they were reconciling their relationships with one another. There are two particular kinds of grudges I want to focus on this morning, too. There's a lot of kinds of grudges you can deal with, but two that I want you to focus on that will be the most poisonous and the most pervasive in our church if we don't take care of them. Number one, you know the kind of grudge you need to get past? Grudges with people in our church. Right? Grudges with people in our church. I know you have grudges with people outside the church, but the one place you need to get rid of grudges, people in this church. As a matter of fact, I'll give you some biblical counsel right now. Uh, you do not leave today from this church property until you have got past any grudges you have with anybody, right? And I'm not telling you to play a victim. I'm not telling you to, well, it's their fault. No, you need to, on your part, get rid of the grudges that you hold, okay? I'm not saying that they, I'm not telling you to go to other people and tell them, well, you have, you have some, you have some apologizing to do. No, you, that's the reason you have grudges, right? Because you're saying everyone else is the problem. And all I'm telling you, get past the grudges of people in our church, because here's what's really important. When people walk out from our community into our church to, to see what it looks like to have a Christian community, to see what it looks like for brothers and sisters in Christ to really love one another and help one another and comfort one another, and they walk in here and there's people pointing fingers everywhere, they're like, man, this, this looks just like work. As a matter of fact, this looks like my home. This looks like me and my kids and my spouse. I don't want any part of this. I got enough of this going on in the house. I don't want to come here and do this with hundreds of other people. We got to get rid of that stuff here. Biblical counsel, right? The Bible tells you when you receive biblical counsel, go apply it, right? So do with that what you will. Go apply that. But there's another place you need to get rid of prior grudges. You're going to get uh, rid of grudges with people in our church. You need to get rid of grudges with people in other churches. Mm-hmm. We're getting there right now, okay? Get rid of grudges with people in other churches, right? What I'm saying is this. You may, have, you may come here because you got mad at somebody else in another church. Get rid of it, Right? You, you're going to be one of those people who are the invasive species, right? I mean, you're going to, you, you had it over there, you got into conflict, you created division and contention in your church. You're going to come over here, and you're not going to like it here because there's going to be more of it. And you're going to take it to the next church, to the next church, to the next church. And before you know, we're going to have a worldwide pandemic of grudges, all right? So it's important for us that we got to not just get rid of the grudges with people in our church, you need to make sure that you are resolving grudges you have with people in other churches. Right? Don't spread that stuff around. Right? Don't give God's bride a bad name. And if you're like, well, I can't go reconcile with them, they're dead. Or I can't go reconcile with them, they have, they have excommunicated me. Great. Then get past your part of the prior grudge. Move past it, get over it, and move on. There's, we got things to do. Right? We got places to go. God's got people to save. He's got a church to build, and he wants to, you to be a part of it. I'll give you three quick ways you can, you can do this. Right? The first thing you need to do is let go of your desire to hold grudges. 
And there's a lot of people, including myself at times, the reason you have a grudge is because you want a grudge. The reason you have a grudge is because you want to hold on to your grudge. You, you have a desire to hold on to it. Why? Because you want to feel vindicated. Right? You, want to feel, you, want, you want people to know, well, so-and-so did me wrong. Or so-and-so hurt my feelings. Or, you know, if you just knew what they did, you, you, and let me tell you about it. Right? I mean, that's, that's what grudges do. And what I'm telling you is, that's not, that's not what the Bible teaches. What I'm going to tell you is that's not what God did for you and me, is it? I mean, God, uh, which is the fundamental problem with our relationship with God, isn't it? That there was a grudge between us and God. You can even say a chasm between you and God. And God didn't say, fools, they did it. They did that to themselves. They're the ones in sin, not me. I mean, they're the ones who messed up, not me. I'm holy and perfect and just. And he's the only person who could say that without being self-righteous because he is self-righteous. He is right. His righteousness is found in himself. Think about that. He's the only being in the universe that can say that my righteousness comes from me. And yet so many of us want to be self-righteous and say, well, if you knew what they did to me, do you know what you did to yourself? Do you recognize that Christ said that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you? Like the fact that you hold grudges of people who you are in like sinful nature. You and -and so-and-so are in the same sinful nature and you won't even forgive each other, even though you know what it's like to have a sinful nature. But yet, God, who has no sinful nature, stepped in your place, clothed you in his righteousness, and restored you into relationship with him. That's the gospel. What would it be like for you to say, I'm letting go of my grudges, I'm killing my self-righteousness, done with it. Because I often say this, and I love saying it, and I'll say it every time I get a chance, the person that you have the biggest problems with in your life is you. You have caused yourself more issues in your whole life than anyone ever has. As a matter of fact, you have caused yourself more problems than everybody else in your life put together. But you forgive yourself, right? You don't hold grudges against yourself, but you'll hold grudges against the least that someone else does. And all I'm saying is preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Say, what is the gospel? How did God apply the gospel to me, and how do I apply the gospel to other people? If he forgave me, yet while I was still a sinner, shouldn't be too hard for me to forgive someone else while they're still a sinner, because I'm still a sinner. And we're all going to have to forgive each other while we're still sinners, because ain't none of us getting out of this, uh, getting out of this life with no sin. And so if you have a problem forgiving people who have sinned against you because they're sinners, you're going to be having this problem for the rest of your life. You're going to have to forgive people while they are yet sinners. Because it, is, it doesn't change. That doesn't change until glory. We're all going to stand in eternity together, and we're not going to have any grudges because we're all going to have the righteousness of Christ fully revealed. We're going to have glorified bodies, and we're going to have no more grudges. But until then, we have this reality that we've got to be a comfort and a help that the Bible teaches, and yet we live in this reality of grudges. So when I put those two things on top of each other, I realize the Bible teaches that you can have grudges. You just need to fix them. Right? You have problems. You need to resolve them. And that's exactly what Paul does there with Mark. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel playing out so that they can do this. And it's the last part on here. And that is so they could focus on the mission. They could focus on the goal. I want you to look at what, of what Paul calls them in the end of verse 11. He's like, these men are the only men in the circumcision. That is, they're Jewish, the men of circumcision. That means they were Jews, which I find very fascinating that Jewish people were going on a Gentile mission. I just love that. Right, because so much in the scripture, you see the Jewish people, they don't like Gentiles, and Gentile people, they don't like Jews. And yet now you see these Jewish men suffering for the sake of Gentile salvation. Anyway, that, that's a little devotional thought for me. I, I, that is just one of the most selfless, amazing things that I see in that text. But go to the main point. These are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Paul says, I'm not going to hold a grudge against Mark because he's my fellow worker for the kingdom of God. Like, there's not enough of us. As a matter of fact, Jesus has a lot to say about the number of harvesters we have, right? He says, he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, okay? And so if you're going to pick people to have grudges against, probably don't pick a group that's small anyway, right? I mean, if we got work to do, we got a mission to partake in, and we already know the workers are few, probably don't be holding grudges against the small group of workers. I mean, we got a mission, and Paul's like, listen, I ain't got nobody like Mark. Mark's great. I love Mark. We have a grudge. We need to get past it because we got a mission. We got work to do. 
And that's why I'm saying you, right, if you're going to be a comfort and of help, you got to do this as point number three. You need to keep the mission in mind. But you've got to keep the mission in mind. Why is this so important? Because nothing gives me more comfort than knowing who's on my team. Anybody else? Right? When you have a, when you have a big, big hard work to do, you've got, you got a big thing going on. Uh, maybe you're at work and you've got a big project, and it's like a giant, your company's biggest project, and you have a deadline in three weeks. What is the first thing you want to know? Who's doing this with me? Right? Who's, who's, who's working on this? When you're in school and you have a science project, and your teacher says, uh, you've got to pick a partner, and you've got to go build a, a volcano and a rocket ship. And you're like, first thing you're doing is like, who can be on my team? Right? I mean, you're looking for a good teammate. Right, that's exactly what we're doing as Christians. We have a teammate. We have teamwork. We have, we have a team of people, fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And isn't it great knowing that you look around this room and you're like, these are my teammates. These are the people. And maybe not the people I ought to pick, but they're my people, right? And we get to go do the work together. Now, there's something a little bit more motivating than just knowing who's on your team. What's more motivating is knowing what mission my team's on. Right? There is nothing more motivating than when you get around a group of people and you're like, I know what our mission is. I know what we're here to do. You don't have this group of people saying our mission is one thing and this group of people saying our mission is another thing and that group saying, I don't even know what our mission is. You have everyone in the room saying, I know what our mission is. That's motivating. That's something you can get behind because everybody here is on the same page. Acts 20, 24. I'll show you what Paul, how Paul feels about having the mission in mind. Exactly how Paul feels about keeping the mission high. This is what he says in Acts 20, 24. Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. He didn't say that God doesn't think I'm precious, that God doesn't think I have value. God believes that all life has value. Right? God knows every hair on your head. But he's saying in his life, as, as he is going about the mission of God, this is his mindset right here. That I do not account any value to my life, nor is it precious to myself. Here's what he has to say. Instead... If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, this is my job. My job, I'm not about me. I'm in the back of the line. My job is to testify to the world about the grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Don't you love it when people get fired up about the Bible? Don't you love it when people are like, yeah, I love the Lord, and yes, I'm out here to reach people for Christ. You like that, don't you? You like it because that's the mission that God has placed on all his people. And if you have the Spirit in you, and people are getting motivated about the gospel, you're going to have this, you're gonna have this little fire inside of you that says, yeah, I can't wait to do that, right? Why? Because you want people who are on a mission. You want to be a part of a mission. You want to be a part of something great. And Paul says, what is great is the mission of God. And I'm not going to let grudges get in the middle of it. I'm going to make sure I'm engaging in the presence of people because it's so important that we keep the mission in mind. And sometimes the mission, keeping the mission in mind, allows you to comfort and help people more. Isn't that true? You ever understood the mission? Uh, for instance, uh, my wife's pregnant. We're having a baby in November. I don't know anything about having a baby. Right? I'm never even going to have a baby. So I'm just going to be there. Okay, I'm going to be there. And she's going to be uh, in the labor delivery room. And she's going to be screaming and yelling, and probably louder than I've ever heard in my life. But here's the news. I'm going to be in there with her the whole time, right? 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 You're going to be in there. Why? Because the mission, you have the mission in mind. You know what's going to happen. You know what comes after this, and it's your child, right? Whatever we have to go through right now, that's part of the mission. That's part of what we're going to do. Because after this, I, some, something is given, and I love that because it's the same picture that we see with Aristarchus, right? Aristarchus, like I told you before, shipwrecked in Malta. I mean, can you imagine volitionally giving yourself for a rest with Paul? And you're like, Paul, I'm going with you, buddy. We're you and me going to Rome, going to see the emperor. And you get into the sea, a large storm, large storm hits you. And you throw, they throw all their gear over, all their food, all their stuff is gone so that their, their ship won't... won't, won't uh, crash and, and tip over, and they still run ashore at a barrier reef, and the ship breaks apart, and they still shipwrecked. And Aristarchus said, I shouldn't have signed up for this. He said, listen, Paul, you can go to prison by yourself. You've already been in there twice, at least, or so I've heard. You could do it a third time by yourself. Is that what Aristarchus did? No, he said, better start swimming, Paul, <laughs> right? Better start swimming. We got we to get to Rome. We got to see the emperor, 
and, and even Mark, right? Can you imagine uh, the embarrassment and the shame, and you do if you've ever reconciled, that comes with fessing up you're wrong to people, looking someone in the eyeball and saying, I'm wrong. I repent. Will you forgive me? How shameful that makes you feel. How embarrassed for some of you men, how emasculating it can feel to just have to humble yourself to that degree for the glory of God. You know who's going to do those things? Somebody whose mind is on the mission. Someone who's focused so much on the mission of God that says a grudge between me and you is not worth the impact and the repercussions and the consequences it would have on the gospel. So I'm going to reconcile because of the gospel. I'm going to reconcile because of the mission of God. So we need to keep the mission in mind. Jot this verse down, 2 Timothy 2.4. 2 Timothy 2.4. We're going to talk about keeping the mission in mind. And we always want to know, what does God have to say about that? What does God have to say about you and me keeping the mission in mind? Right? I understand I have the great commission and the great commandment, and they're both one assignment, and i got to know both of them. And what does the Bible say about it? 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Did you hear that? We are all soldiers of Christ. Right? You and I, we've been enlisted graciously into the service of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we do is we please the one who enlisted us, and we don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. To think about how often when the mission is high, and we understand what our role is in God's church as God's people to, do the, to be great commission-minded, that we want to go make disciples, and to be great commandment-minded, I want to comfort and care for the brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet you're getting entangled in a million other things that have nothing to do with God. You're getting entangled in so many other things that have nothing to do with pleasing the Lord who enlisted you. And you wonder, well, why don't I ever feel comforted? Well, how many other things are you pursuing? I mean, how, if you write a list, how many other things are you pursuing that God has had you, not had you involved in at all, that he would desire you not to be even part of? And you start taking those things out and say, well, this doesn't please God. This doesn't please God. I'm getting entangled in something that has nothing to do with God here. Uh, this is something I wanted to do. God, you know, that, God didn't ask me to do that. That's just something I like doing. Instead saying, I'm a soldier of God. I'm not getting entangled in civilian pursuits. I've got a mission. I've got a goal. I've got a master. And he's called me to do something. And he's given me the whole job. I want you to keep the mission in mind. You know what the mission here encompasses? If I give you, there we go, there we go, right? We're reaching, teaching, and training. And you're like, what does that mean? Okay, we're here to reach people for Christ, teach people to be like Christ, and to train people to serve Christ. Did you know that's why you were here? Right? If you didn't, I want you to learn that so you can be motivated to, this is why we're here. Uh, I didn't say this in the last service, but I got 30 seconds, so I might as well. A lot of people come into a church. I'm, telling, I'm saying, if your church is a home run, right? and there are churches out there, they're not perfect, but they're great. Right? I mean, it's like, wow, there are some great, godly, biblical churches out there. There can be people, and you could be one of them, and I could be one of them, that come into these churches, and we can get so frustrated at what they're doing and what they're not doing and what's going on in their church. And I'm like, did you ever even look at their mission statement? Did you go look at why that church is in that community? And you might find out that so much of the stuff that they do in their church is to fulfill the mission that they have. And I'm not saying, I mean, I'm saying your church, the church you go to better have a biblical mission. Reaching, teaching, and training is just Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? Go into all the world and make disciples, right? If we're going to make disciples, we're going to have to do things like reach people, right? right? Reaching people for Christ, teaching. Go and teach them all the things that I've commanded you to do. So there we are, teaching people. And we're going to train people. That means that we want more people to go make disciples and teach people. Right? That's what we're doing. And all I'm saying is make sure that when you're a part of a church, go understand what the mission is. Re understand what the Great Commission is. Understand what the Great Commandment is. And understand that you have a part to play in that. And so many times you can be so entangled in civilian pursuits that you kind of, you're a part of this church with going to, we've had some cool stuff coming down the line, I don't want to ruin it at all, but we have some really cool things going on, and you get so entangled in the tertiary things that you're not even focusing on making disciples. And I think that's why we're here. The other things, let's deal with them, let's move on. The other conflict you have on other lesser things, let's move past it because we got a mission, we got a goal, we got something to do here. What I don't want you to do is miss out on the whole mission of God 
because you neglect half of the assignment. Right? I don't want that to be, I don't want you to kind of not, to, to kind of miss out. And sometimes you don't even know it. If you have half of a good thing, sometimes you don't even realize you only got half of it. You just kind of deal with it. And, you're, and, and some people, maybe you're one of those who say, fine, that's fine with me. Half a good thing is good. It's like, yeah, but God wants to give you the whole good thing. Like, God wants you to have the whole good thing. And the whole good thing is, you understand the whole assignment is that we do make disciples, but we also comfort one another. Like, Paul, for instance, I mean, the guy had a, the guy had a mission, right? The guy had a goal. He had to go reach the Gentiles for Christ. He could have done it by himself, but he did it a lot better, a lot more efficiently, with a lot greater joy, because he did it with others. And I want you to be that kind of Christian. I want this to be that kind of church. Pray with me. God, I pray that we would be the kind of church that is known for great commission, commitment, and great commandment participation. And what I mean by that, God, is that we would be a church that loves making disciples, that sees the great need to see lost saved. But we're also a people who loves people so much that we comfort them, that we live to help, that as we see our brothers and sisters in need or in needing uh, assistance and needing comfort and needing refreshment, that we would be those who give the refreshment and give the encouragement and give the comfort. I love, God, that your word, <coughs> even as I see Aristarchus going to great lengths, even at great personal cost, to see the comfort of the saints. And I pray, God, and I look forward to seeing a church, this church, go to great lengths to see people comforted, and that people would come from miles and miles around to see a church just living out the Bible, a church that just says, the Bible says that I'm going to believe and I'm going to do it because every single word is inspired by God and it's profitable for us. God, help us live that out today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>